Simon and Garfunkel once sang, I'm a rock, I'm an island. I'm beginning to think they were wrong. No one is an island. This is an idea that I've both struggled and strived to embrace. As a person living in a capitalist society which rewards individuality and those with bootstraps they can pull up on their own, it's hard sometimes to admit that I need help even when I do. This do-it-yourself attitude has led to innovation, such as when I used Kleenex and Kraft Innerbox cardboard to shim our front door, and PTSD. Ask Aiden about the time we broke the hot water radiator pipe valve and flooded our office with water so hot it basically melted the skin on my hands and feet. But the relief that comes from admitting that one needs a little help can't be fully described. I want that to be my default mode, especially when it's so stinking easy to go ahead and cut my own bangs for the umpteenth time. The incomparably funny and poignant comedian Hannah Gadsby said it best. This adoration of the artist as a lone genius is quite misled, I think, because they are very much a part of their time and their community. And sometimes we all need a community, whether it's because our own expertise has fallen short or because two heads are better than one, not one among us can say that we are perfectly capable of living life without the help of our friends, not even William Shakespeare. That's what this episode is all about, the collaborative nature of Shakespeare's plays, which has produced a group of works known as the Shakespeare Apocrypha. These are plays that are fairly universally accepted to have been written by Shakespeare alongside various other playwrights, though exactly which playwrights is often the source of controversy, as we'll see. They're dubbed apocryphal because their authenticity as purely Shakespeare is either very much in doubt or thoroughly debunked, but they cannot wholly be struck from their canon-adjacent position in literary history. However, outside of academia, they're fairly unknown, and I think that's partly because the powers that be have for too long bought into that myth of the lone genius, and now the rest of us can't admit that a genius like Shakespeare collaborated with others in the creation of his collected works. It feels wrong somehow, but it's an historical fact. The community in which Shakespeare worked was a collaborative one. It's far more likely that many of his works passed beneath the quills of his fellow players than we might want to believe. I don't know exactly why we do that. One of the reasons Aiden and I started this podcast was to get to the bottom of it, and I don't think we're any closer now than we were in 2019 when we started. But it's rather fitting that as we near the end of our sojourn through the Shakespearean canon, we're right back where we started, with partnerships. Those of you with us since the beginning will remember our look at David Lynch and Mark Frost, and the partnership behind Twin Peaks. We've talked a lot through the years about the Lennon-McCartney partnership behind the Beatles. At the very beginning of this essay, I quoted Simon and Garfunkel, hell, you're listening to the product of my partnership with Aiden. Which really has to make you wonder, is there room for Shakespeare and... Since brevity is the soul of wit. More of your conversation would infect my brain. Romeo. Wherefore art thou, Romeo? To speak of him as my kinsman, he's a most notable coward. An infinite and endless liar. An hourly promise breaker. The owner of no one good quality worthy your lordship's entertainment. And beat thee, but I should infect my hand. The lady doth test too much, methinks. The course of true love never did run smooth. 
I'm Lindsay. And I'm Aiden. And we are the Bix. Yes, we are. And this episode is about the apocryphal plays. As Lindsay, oh so eloquently, oh. Uh, I have to up your eloquence <clears throat> level compared to, you always call mine eloquent. And, Do I? Yeah, and it's always wrong. Um, but in I this case... I black out when I'm <laughs> talking about, the, on the podcast in general. I'm yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. we're here for an hour and I'm like, what, what happened? happened? Yeah, you're just like uh, Will Ferrell <laughs> in uh, what, whatever that one was. Uh, but yeah, this, thank you very much, Lindsay, for that very uh, nice introduction because this is all about Shakespeare's collaborative efforts and uh, they are spread across a number of plays, um, some of which were originally attributed just to Shakespeare, uh, some of which have never been attributed to Shakespeare, but, you know, someone tried to sneak it in. Uh, there's there's a whole wide range of Shakespeare's connections with other playwrights. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to talk about all of them today. Um, and well, in, in, in not all of them in any great detail. No. This is not a 16 hour long podcast. No, but thank God. Um, uh, but yeah, but we'll touch on a lot of them. And we did both, uh, we read uh, Shakespeare plays that fall into this category. Yep. I read uh, Henry VIII. And, or All is True. Or All is True. And you read? Two Noble Kinsmen. That's the one. Uh, and so we, we have, we dove a bit into a bit more detail on those, but uh, there's at a high level, there's a lot to talk about as well. So Lindsay did the bulk of the research for this episode. I so. did. And the only reason I did that was because... You loved it. Well, I really did. <laughs> it was it was something that I was looking forward to looking at um, from the beginning. And some because it's something that I know very little about. And, and it does fascinate me. As I said in my essay, it's, it's an idea that I struggle with, but I also really want to accept, right? That, that Shakespeare was collaborative. Mm-hmm. And I have accepted it for a lot of the plays we've talked about them. Pericles, for example, was one that was written in conjunction with other people way back when we did Henry the mm-hmm. Um We talked about this as well. So it's not like this is a, a foreign concept, but it was really interesting to kind of uh, medium dive into yeah. Um, yeah. the kind of the, the history and all the other playwrights who kind of fit into or have been suggested as um, partners of Shakespeare's yeah. and it'll lead really nicely into our final topical episode in a couple of weeks where yeah. we uh, discuss the authorship question yes. so so Linz, why don't we start off with talking about the publishing process and how that connected with our idea of what Shakespeare wrote yeah and I think uh, I don't remember if we talked about this I'm sure we did yeah I think way we back it. at the beginning yeah. um, about the the way that Shakespeare's plays were disseminated mm-hmm. during his lifetime um, only about half of his plays were published within his lifetime and in various editions but mostly quartos yeah. um, we've talked about the bad quarto versions mm. and things like that they were small quartos were small really cheap to produce um, they consisted of eight pages printed four to a side so you'd have a big sheet of paper you'd print on both sides four sheets that would then be folded twice to make four leaves mm-hmm. that consisted of eight yeah. pages yeah. um and uh we'll include a photo of this on our yeah how uh, they folded up yeah yeah because it, it's it's interesting this was kind of the the start of publishing as a a thing the yeah. gutenberg press had only recently been invented um so yeah that's how shakespeare's plays at the beginning uh were were first disseminated and they were done, like I said, quickly and very cheaply and were generally not based on like the the yeah. actual scripts or the... Um, the manuscripts yeah, written like the, by the playwright, the, the, yeah. What did he call them? The, the, the good papers or something? <laughs> I forget what that... I, there's a word for it. Yeah. Um, they were produced by memory from actors and people in the audiences who remembered the play. So um, that's when we talk about bad quartos. That's kind of what we're referring to um 
So they're filled with errors, but they're errors only seen when compared to the folio, which was the famously compiled collected works as we know them today, Mm -hmm. produced by Hemings and Condell in 1623, which was seven years after Shakespeare died. Um, And this has become the like holy grail, the Bible of of Shakespearean scholarship because it was produced within living memory of the author by people who were familiar with him. So it's seen as a definitive collection of his works. The Quartos, not so much because anybody could have written that up, published them, claimed they were by whoever, but the folio was official, right? So when we look at the Shakespeare canon, that's really it, which is interesting because um, Henry VIII, no, Two Noble Kinsmen is in the folio, but Henry VIII nope. isn't? No, Henry VIII is, and yeah, Two Noble Kinsmen yeah. is not. But as we'll see, that that kind of gets muddied a bit, because it's not like you can look at that and say, this was Shakespeare's, purely Shakespeare's work, right? Yeah, and we've so, mentioned it, again, yeah. with Henry IV, or Henry VI, like, they were plays that are attributed to Shakespeare, and, but they don't feel quite like Shakespeare, so yeah. we'll, we'll get to that later on. But yeah, that was, that was the uh, general approach to how publishing has influenced uh, how we read which plays are. Or yeah. Shakespeare's and not. Yeah. 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 Um, so that's the official source. The Apocrypha is the stuff that kind of exists outside of that yeah. realm. And scholars aren't in perfect agreement about what should fall under the title of Apocrypha. So one scholar that I came across from, I believe, the 1930s, uh, C.F. Tucker Brook, which is just a great name. It's a great name. He was an author, a teacher, a literary scholar. He published several books about Tudor and Elizabethan dramatists, notably about Shakespeare, but also Marlowe as well. And he used a a fairly scientific approach to studying the plays and considered up to 46 uncanonical plays which have been ascribed to Shakespeare. And some Um, as late as 1840, as we'll get, which is really funny to me. So so he had this list of 46 plays that I was going to copy down and read to you, but that's 46 plays. That's way too many That's a little crazy. Um, And anyway, he dismissed all but 14 of them, um, which he figured had acquired a real claim to the title of Shakespeare Apocrypha. Um, And we'll link to his book. There's a a beautiful, um, I think the Oxford University scanned all of his books so you can read for yourself what he wrote. Um, So what are those 14? These plays, yeah, commonly (laughs) attributed to Shakespeare within the 16th or 17th century, except where otherwise noted. We've got Arden of Feversham, which is a play from about 1592. The play... Locrin or Locrin from 1595, um, which was attributed to W.S., not mm-hmm. William Shakespeare or anything, just yeah. W.S. Yeah. Um, Edward III from 1596, the first part of Sir John Oldcastle from 1600, Thomas Lord Cromwell, again attributed to W.S. from 1602, The London Prodigal, 1605, The Puritan from 1607, again attributed to W.S., A Yorkshire Tragedy, 1608, um, my favorite, The Merry yeah. Devil of Edmonton. Yeah, I gotta find that 1608. One. Yeah. As listeners will know, we are from Edmonton, Alberta, not Edmonton, the London. area yeah. north of London. Yeah. Um, or in northern London, I guess now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Fair M from the second edition was published in 1631. I think the first edition was not undated or something like mm-hmm. that. The Two Noble Kinsmen, 1634. The Birth of Merlin, 1662. And Sir Thomas More, which was discovered in 1840. And there was overwhelming evidence to include it in this. Amongst the list. Amongst this list. So he he kind of broke his own um, criteria to include that one. But thought it it just warranted 
admission. Yeah. So the WS thing is really interesting because um, as Brooke mentions and as uh, E.K. Chambers, who another author that we'll link to as well, um, have pointed out, WS could refer to Wentworth Smith, who was another uh, lesser known playwright. Of the time. Uh, playwright. Yep. William Smith or William Sly, um, who were all people <laughs> in the publishing yeah. world. So I mean, yeah. WS doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Um, but again, I haven't read any of these plays. I don't know how, I have no claim to yeah. say whether or not they yeah. are. But C.F. Tucker Brooks said they were, so he's as good an authority as you're going to get on this podcast. He's, he's so. one, well, yeah, for this podcast. <laughs> there, there are many schools of thought on this, though. Um, that, that was my in, uh, interesting thing I learned when I was doing a little bit of research for this episode was just like there is a huge yeah. swath of, of differing opinions on what uh, counts as Shakespeare and what doesn't mm-hmm. and what counts as an apocryphal. What's what's adjacent to Shakespeare yeah. um, and which ones are just plays that happen to be unaccounted for at that time that we have the text for and we don't know who wrote them. So and we're just like, like, yeah, Shakespeare, Shakespeare, why not? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, I mean, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of that. Um well, we'll get to my uh, feelings about this later on, but uh, it's it's definitely very cool that there's this uh, and and people huge, get get yeah, really like um, they're it's like personal to them, yeah, right? Like yeah. I was reading some of these articles. I'll, we'll link to almost all of them, I'm sure, um, on the podcast landing page. But um, like people would refer to other scholars as like this guy's an idiot because he said this, and and I'm like, this is just about a play, dude. Like relax. <laughs> but I guess for these guys, it's like your whole life's work, right? Yeah, this yeah. is what you do. Yeah. So you're gonna you're gonna take it personally when somebody's mm-hmm. like, well, actually. Thomas Kidd probably wrote that yeah, yeah. or whatever, right? Yeah. Speaking of, uh, let's look at some of the plays attributed to Shakespeare after the 17th century specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and Lindsay mentioned most of them already. Uh, so we'll just go through in a bit more detail. Uh, Arden of Faversham. Um, it, this is the one from 1592, I believe, 1593. Yeah. Uh, it was, it, people now think uh, there's a lot of scholarships uh, pointing to Thomas Kidd as being mm-hmm. the primary author. Um, but there is evidence that Shakespeare likely wrote a single scene or had a hand in scene seven of this play. So it's just an example of perhaps, you know, that, that collaboration, and especially this was Shakespeare's earlier years. Yeah. He would have been the new kid on the block, you know, Thomas Kidd's writing a play and he's like, yeah, I'll I get need in some help that. with this thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I'll pay, you, I'll pay you half a pound to, to finish off this scene for me because I'm getting drunk tonight and I don't want to finish And it, I think you know? we, we say scene seven here. I think that's because this play was not divided into acts. It's acts, It was yeah. just scene one, two, three, four, just 15, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, another one, Edmund Ironside, which is an anonymous manuscript. Uh, not many Shakespeare scholars are actually convinced that it is his work, um, but it is another one of these entries that mm-hmm. people uh, have thought of. Sir Thomas More, which is really an interesting play. Um, so the complete Oxford Shakespeare from 2005 actually listed as being by Anthony Monday and Henry Chettle. Um, and was revised then by Thomas Decker, Thomas Haywood, and Shakespeare. So yeah. this is one of those ones that they think Shakespeare had uh, another hand in. Um, but it, it's it's one of those plays also that's only available in a manuscript, not as a printed form. So, yeah. uh, you know, you're re- literally reading the handwriting of the authors. Uh, and there's quite a few examples of this. Uh, yeah, and this is the one I'm thinking of, actually. Hand D. Uh, so the, there's the, four the storied hand D. Yes, yeah. so there's four uh, sets of uh, descri- or, uh, decipherable handwriting in this in this manuscript, and one of them, hand D, the fourth hand, uh, maybe Shakespeare's. Yeah. Uh, based on uh, trying to get into an analysis of uh, the uh, 
his his signatures that are definitely attributed to him. Uh, there's a whole other field of study just focused on on that niche part of this this sub uh, topic around Shakespeare. We'll get to it. We've yeah. got some stuff yeah. about that. So uh, actually, I think there was more than than four hands in that. I think there's six oh or really seven. okay yeah. It's just there's like hand. A, B, C, D, and then there's hand O and hand F. Like, oh, okay. I don't really know what it's... Are they carbon dated to different times or something like that? No, too? it's just, oh, okay. I think it's just, thought, they have I different... I, I think there's only... I can't remember. I'm getting all my research confused. But um, there's, it's different handwriting styles that yeah, you can yeah. decipher. Yeah. And it's all, it's the hard part about that is that it's secretary hand, which mm-hmm. is... Like next to impossible for yeah, a you and I could not read. read it. It's really yeah. Yeah, like I can look at it and I can recognize some of the really weird looking letters. letters yeah, but to make out a word, unless yeah. you tell me what it is, yeah, there's then, no yeah, way that yeah, I can exactly. tell what it is. Yeah, um, Thomas of Woodstock's another one. Uh, it's another manuscript uh, which is missing its last pages, um, and it takes place immediately before the events of Richard II. So. Um, a that's mon- really one of the biggest links to oh, okay to why it's that, Shakespeare. Yes, yeah. that's right. Um, and a, a stylistic analysis actually suggests Samuel Rowley as one of the possible authors. So again, there's all these authors milling about. Uh, you get a manuscript from 1601, and you're like, oh yeah, maybe this is you know it, it's again it's matching up with the Richard II timeline. Look into it that way. Um, the Spanish Tragedy, mm-hmm. which I think is one I've actually heard of. Mm-hmm. Uh, was definitely written by Thomas Kidd, um, but it may have been revised by Shakespeare again. Mm-hmm. Again, um, by handwriting analysis, yes, they is, figured that out. Yeah. So the Royal Shakespeare Company attributed the play in part to Shakespeare in their 2013 version, uh, and it does bear some similarities similarities to Hamlet, which I think we talked about in our Hamlet episode. I think we, I think we, we might may have, have brought yeah. that up. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's that's it's, where you know about it from, yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, and then favorite title of them all: A Knack to Know a Knave. Which when Lindsay found that, she's like, "Ha." A knack to know a knave. And I'm, like, I, I'm a sucker awesome. for alliteration. Yeah. I just, you know, ask my students. And they puns. Think it's so, yes. I, the dad joke gene, yeah, Aiden. It really passed on to you. Um, yeah. Anyways, uh, Shakespeare may have rewritten some of the romantic subplot according to Hans Peterborn. Yes. I added the Swedish tongue on that. Um, <laughs> and it's otherwise tentatively attributed to Robert Greene. Robert so. Greene, the famous Grotesworth of Wit writer who oh, yes. insulted Shakespeare at the very yeah. beginning of his career. So um, funny that... Uh, one of his plays that now is attributed or, or tentatively attributed to him also is linked to Shakespeare. Shakespeare. I, I have yeah. a I, maybe there was some friendly rivalry there. I don't really know enough about Robert Greene except that he well that, and obviously Upstart Crow. Well, yes, he was a main major character <laughs> yeah, in that in that TV series. Why some are born great, some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrown upon them. So onto the Lost Plays, which, again, mm. we have mentioned a couple of these. Uh, I think we mentioned all of these. Yeah. Um, the first one that comes to mind, Love's Labor's One. Yeah. The sequel to Love's Labor's Lost, which I'm very upset that we don't have. Um, so there's two sources for uh, this play actually existing and being put on. One was uh, Francis Mears, uh, a journal entry, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a scrap of paper from a bookseller. Both <laughs> list the title as one of Shakespeare's published works uh, from like the late, 19, late 16th century. Um, but no play in its entirety has ever been found. I love the fact that people think that it could have been an alternate title yeah. for a, a play that we know by a different mm-hmm. name, like Much Ado About Nothing or All's Well That Ends Well or Taming of the Shrew, that maybe it was known as another by another title, Love's Labor's One or something at well, some yeah, point. Well, yeah, it might have been a marketing play. Like, yeah. you love Love's Labor's Lost, come Here's see Love's, Love's Labor's, Labor's One. One, and it's Much Ado. And you're yeah. just like, yeah, Love's wins. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, it works out, right? Uh, that's very cool. Mm-hmm. Um, Cardenio, another one uh, written by Shakespeare and probably 
probably John Fletcher, has a very interesting history. Um, so it's probably an adaptation of Don Quixote, of <laughs> all things. Um, and in 1727, Louis Theobald produced a play called Double Falsehood, which he claimed to have adapted from uh, three manuscripts of a lost play by Shakespeare, but he didn't name it. He didn't name what those plays were. Uh, so maybe it was Cardenio at the time. Uh, so Arden, that kind of uh, story about that play has then yeah. followed along through the Shakespeare uh, lineage uh, to the point that the Arden Shakespeare published Double Falsehood in 2010, listing it as by Shakespeare and Fletcher and only adapted by Leas Theobald. So... Um, and in 2013, this continued with the Rail Shakespeare Company uh, attributing double falsehood in part to Shakespeare. Um, and then handwriting analysis of a manuscript of Thomas Middleton's The Second Maiden's Tragedy suggests that it's actually Shakespeare's Cardenio. And it is sometimes performed on stage under that name. Which is so, so funny. Right? Yeah, it's <laughs> just like a random like... So you got yeah. maybe this play that Louis Theobald wrote yeah. called Double Falsehood that was adapted, but maybe it was based on Cardenio. And then you've got... Uh, but no, actually, maybe Lewis Theobald adapted Shakespeare. And no, actually, maybe Thomas Middleton's The Second Maiden's Tragedy is this play. Like, this this Cardenio is, like, mythical. Yeah. And it, it's like the, the I don't know, Isle of Avalon. I'm, I'm really going for the Arthur. <laughs> Arthur and, references. Yeah. yeah, I like it. Um, and then finally, the one I don't think we did talk about during our Hamlet. No, we so. did. I, I know oh, we, we did. did. Yeah, okay. the Ur Hamlet. Or maybe it was King Lear. We did talk about for both of those, yeah, that yeah. there was an earlier version of this play. Yeah. So uh, Ur Hamlet, uh, produced, proposed by many scholars uh, to be an early Shakespeare play. Um, so others others believe it was written by Thomas Kidd as well. Yeah, that's a um, more mainstream modern view is that okay. Thomas Kidd wrote this play and then Shakespeare, Shakespeare adapted, adapted it. Into, into they were both adapting it from an earlier story, yeah. as, as they all did at the time. Okay. You horse and cur, do, do. thou stool for a wit. I do, do, thou sudden witted lord. Thou hast no more brain than a happy man ever. So next we have um, the apocryphal poems. So way, way, way back at the beginning of this part of our podcast um, on Shakespeare, we did the sonnets and we did um, the longer poems, the, the Rape of Lucrece and Venus and Adonis. But we didn't touch these poems, which are often published along with Shakespeare's plays. Um, in in various collections, so they'll sound familiar to you if you if you have a collection of Shakespeare um, sitting on your bookshelf. Um, they are poems published anonymously and later attributed to Shakespeare. Some within the 17th century, but none of them are universally accepted as being by Shakespeare. Yeah. And now. It's, it is important to note that not all of the poems published under Shakespeare's name in his lifetime are 100% confirmed to be his 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. So really take this with a grain of salt. Like these are poems that were published anonymously or published in collections with Shakespeare's work. So they've been attributed to him. And we've got other poems that bear his name but may have been written by somebody else entirely, mm-hmm. which really just fuels the fire of the authorship question, I think. But yeah. Um, so yes, we've got The Passionate Pilgrim, which is a pretty famous poem, mm-hmm. um, or collection of poems, sorry, that was first published in 1599 by the same publisher of the first folio, William Jaggard. And interestingly, um, the title page listed as Shakespeare's, but many of the poems are known to have been written by others, yeah. such as Thomas Haywood. Um, his poems on the theme of Helen of Troy were included in a, an expanded ed- edition from 1612. And, um, and he kind of took exception to this, having his poems included. He wrote that Shakespeare himself, Haywood wrote this, was much offended 
with Jaggard for making so bold with his name. Hmm. So it's it may have been that Haggard was trying to capitalize on the popularity of Shakespeare and included poems in that to get them selling or yeah. whatever yeah. Um, by saying they were by Shakespeare, but they yeah. weren't. Yeah. So that's that's where that comes from. A Lover's Complaint, another one that was published in, as an appendix to the sonnets in 1609 and has been recently attributed to the poet John Davies. Uh, okay. To the Queen was, interestingly enough, discovered in 1972 in a notebook. Um, who, <laughs> by, The notebook of Henry Stadford, who was uh, a secretary or something for the Lord Chamberlain. And uh, this poem praises Elizabeth I and was likely recited in an epilogue or something during a royal performance. So hmm. it's a poem basically glorifying um, Queen, Queen Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Yeah. And uh, it's it's been attributed to Shakespeare, but also to Ben Jonson and Thomas Decker. So it's like yeah. anybody who was anybody yeah. has Around had their the name time, yeah, exactly, attributed yeah. to this poem. Yeah. Um, a Funeral Elegy was uh, a poem that has been stylometrically analyzed. Which we'll get to later on yep. soon, dude. Uh, in 1989, and it was attributed to Shakespeare based on grammatical patterns and idiosyncratic word usage. Mm. Um but John Ford has also been proposed as a, a likely author, author for that right, as yeah. well. Shall I Die is a nine-verse love poem attributed to Shakespeare, but this is not widely accepted. And then there are uh, four epitaphs that Shakespeare apparently or allegedly wrote. Okay. Um, two to John Combe, who was a Stratford businessman. One to Elias James, who was a brewer in Blackfriars in London, <laughs> okay. and a joking epitaph to Ben Jonson. And I had such a fun time reading these and reading about them. Yeah. Uh, so Elias James's epitaph, the Blackfriar brewer, no longer exists, but it was recorded in John Stowe's 1633 edition of Survey of London okay. because it was um, included. It was part of a a wall, or it was put somewhere, somewhere that he was able to read it, but it's been lost since then. Okay. And it praises. Elias James's godly life. Okay. Um, the two epitaphs to John Combe, one of them was done uh, probably while he was alive. And uh, the first, this is the first one we'll talk about. It's a satirical comment on his lending money at 10% interest. And this is a quote from the poem. He lent money at one in 10, and it's 10 to one, he'll end up in hell. This was the, a line from this epitaph. It's, it's said that, that Shakespeare composed it on the spot at a party with Combe in attendance. Um, but okay. it's been attributed to other artists and uh, or other writers and addressed to other users as well. So it's not like this is <laughs> it was just the, 100%. Yeah, it was the insult to dish out to <laughs> yeah. money lenders. But like you can imagine this, like you're, you're at a party, you're a little drunk, and somebody's mm. like, Shakespeare, you know, write a poem. Yeah, and he's yeah. like, fine, I'll talk about this guy who's, you know, <laughs> yeah. ripping us all off. And Shakespeare, what we do know about the life of Shakespeare is he was very concerned with his money. So, yeah, of yeah. course, he's going to be upset with the guy charging 10% interest. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, but the second epitaph is more flattering and praises him for giving money to the poor in his will. Um, this hasn't survived, but yeah. um, probably was posthumous, like it was after Combe yeah. had died. And then finally, uh, Ben Jonson. This was a joking epitaph written while obviously Ben Jonson was still alive. He writes, Here lies Ben Jonson, who while he lived was a slow thing, and now being dead is a no thing, which I just think is pretty great. I want that on my 
On my grave. <laughs> You're not going to have a grave. But anyways, <laughs> that's uh, okay. That's good to know. I'll uh, store that one away for future reference. That That's good, though. I like those. That's uh, Yeah, and it seems like like the kind of fun yeah. thing that, you know. He'd do with a close friend. You know? yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. which does, especially if you can... Um, if you can tie the Ben Johnson one, I especially like that one because we all know that they had a rivalry, mm-hmm. but obviously there was a bit of a, a closeness there because mm-hmm. he did write the um, prologue or whatever to the, yeah, the, to the folio. folio. Yeah, so yeah. it's kind of nice. If you prick us! Do we not meet? Next, we have hoaxes, um, and oh, there's like there's really there's really just one big one that is uh, awesome. It, it's a great story, and we'll link to maybe I think there's actually a Wikipedia entry just for this one, but if not, we'll find a good article that yeah. covers it. Up. Um, but uh, it's from 1796. William Henry Ireland uh, claimed to have found a lost play uh, called Vortigern and Rowena. And he'd, he'd basically, it was a complete scam. Uh, he'd, he'd been practicing forging Shakespeare writings uh, but uh, in his past, and but this was the first time he did his play. But this was also the only time he tried to pass mm-hmm. it off as actually Shakespeare's. And it worked. This yeah, the that's the crazy thing. For a while, thing. it worked. Yeah, people were like, oh my God, yeah. Like, they, people like, just this read. This is a real, like, the literary community was just up in arms. They yeah. were like, oh my God, a new Shakespeare play. A new Shakespeare play. play. <laughs> produce this play yeah well that's the thing lane well and that's the thing and that's when it all fell apart because it was not good it was awful everybody kind of realized that and it just makes me wonder like these people have been reading shakespeare and probably seeing shakespeare for their whole lives do they not think like this doesn't read very well? Yeah, like, you get how, up on, how on stage so and, and Vortigern and Rowena, and it's like roses are red, yeah. violets are blue, and everybody's like boo, throwing yeah. tomatoes and like how do you not get tomatoes, that right? Like I just yeah. it it uh, it uh, encourages me to think that uh, intellectuals of all periods are fucking stupid. Just just up their own asses, you know. <laughs> totally. I mean, just did not see it coming. <laughs> the emperor so. has no clothes. And, so uh, yeah. he was eventually uh, Ireland was eventually uh, confronted with this terrible play. And he admitted that it was a hoax the yeah. whole time. So that one's, I love that. It's That's a, a great, great story. All the world's a stage. And all the men and women merely players. So within the the accepted canon of Shakespeare's works, we do have a list of known collaborators. Mm-hmm. So many of them we've talked about as we've gone through the, the collected works um, on this podcast. Some we haven't. So Titus Andronicus, I think one of the first plays we did way back or second play we did, um, was likely collaborated on On by George Peel. (laughs) Henry VI with Thomas Thomas Nash or Thomas Kidd. Mm -hmm. Timon of Athens with Thomas Middleton, we mentioned. Pericles by George Wilkins. And then John Fletcher, who was the upcoming prince he was the next principal dramatist i think for the king's men once shakespeare retired yeah. so he did worked on him with henry the eighth and tunable kinsman probably cardenio as well yeah so this is the one that we we those are the plays we read uh were these collaborative ones and uh just well, a little bit about fletcher yeah. like he was um <clears throat> so he was basically just like another he was the next guy um he was born in 1579 so he would have been taking okay. over shakespeare in his like late 20s uh, early 30s almost. Yeah, he's so, like 15 years younger than yeah, Shakespeare. Yeah, so. so and he only lived to be 45, so he did not wow. live a very long time. Um, and it's not bad for a guy. No, I mean, in that age, yeah. And in England. I think most, uh, I mean, he's mostly known for being the collaborator with and successor to Shakespeare. And he was very popular in the Jacobean trade. His plays really? did great. Uh, the King's Men continued to, 
kick ass. Sell out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, right through until Charles. So, yeah. I mean, this was, uh, he was very successful player. Mm-hmm. Very, very big name. Uh, very useful, or very useful. Very uh, well respected. He was useful. He was useful for us, <laughs> uh, Shakespeare scholars. Well, and them. This bridge, yeah. Write the plays and make a lot of money. Yeah, for sure. Um, and he's kind of fallen out of favor since then. I, I think reading yeah. Henry VIII, I can kind of tell why maybe. Um, but yeah, he is, he was this, the, the plays that we read are in this exchange period where Shakespeare's handing off the reins to the next guy. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not busy writing quite as much. Uh, he's maybe doing the Tempest and stuff like that. And yeah. he's looking towards the end. Um, and John Fletcher's the one picking up the, the slack and running with it. So he's, nice. uh, he's, he's obviously the most, uh, common collaborator with Shakespeare and the fact that yeah. he wrote so many plays likely with Shakespeare. Um, in the 2016 New Oxford edition or New Oxford Shakespeare modern critical edition, sorry. That's a mouthful. It is. Um, they identified 17 plays of Shakespeare's that were written in collaboration, including most interesting to me, Christopher yeah, Marlowe in as the Henry VI trilogy, which yeah. we didn't know at the time we were writing it or reading it. Yeah, sorry. I, I'd love to learn more about that because <clears throat> yeah. I, I mean, I, I did read Dr. Faustus. Yeah. Uh, but I never saw, I've never seen a Marlowe well, play put on. Yeah. And, and, yeah. So having that to compare. Mm-hmm. It would um, be interesting. And to like to, to take Faustus maybe and to take something else that we know is, is more likely to be more purely Shakespeare. And then mm-hmm. look at the Henry VI trilogy again. Yeah. Because um, Christopher Marlowe was kind of the, as you know, the golden boy yeah, of, the of Elizabethan England, the mm-hmm. famously died in a bar fight. Or maybe or faked maybe his not. death. Yeah. Um, possibly a spy for the Elizabethan... Uh, High court. Yeah. Yes. Yep. So um, for him to have been working with Shakespeare, they definitely would have crossed paths. And I think that's... That, it would be kind of like... Um, I don't know. I was... Gonna, <laughs> the first thing that came to mind, this is so stupid. <laughs> like uh, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch and that other British actor that uh, played Stephen Hawking. Like they both played Stephen Hawking. But the one guy, the other guy won the the Oscar for his version, and no? I was just Wait like, the two of Jump, them collaborating ben on Cumberbatch something. Cumberbatch played Hawking? Yeah, I think so. Oh, okay. In like a, mm, it was a while ago. Okay. It was a long time okay. ago. That's a, it's a weird reference. I'm yeah. there for it. Lindsay Did continue. he play? Maybe he didn't. Did I, am I making this up? Are you thinking of The Imitation Game and his, his role as the... That other guy? The other guy? Alan Turing? Turing. No. The Turing test. Either no. way, I'm trying to think of like two big names <laughs> who like collaborate together. Actors don't really collaborate that way. Anyways, continue on. Cardi B and I don't know. I don't know popular music. No, you don't. And we should stop. There's trying. Thomas Middleton as well, who uh, possibly helped adapt All Is Well That Ends Well. This is according to the New Oxford oh, okay. Shakespeare. Okay. Um, they're analysis is notable because they used quote unquote big data computerized mm-hmm. databases to and an, to analyze the sociolect wow. and the idiolect of these works. So sociolect is words. the way people spoke at the time and idiolect is the the speech habits of an individual. So they were looking at the plays for these two kind of idiosyncratic things that are useful in identifying an author mm-hmm. and um and they were able to then say, well, this person more heavily used these things and this person did this. So mm-hmm. we can kind of assign authorship based on that. So that's that's kind of interesting. I think when we get to the, you know, talking about handwriting analysis and stylometry, I think that that part really intrigues me. So mm-hmm. 
Um, and then just other collaborators that uh, are that come up all the time. Edward III, um, Brian Vickers, a uh, scholar, has said that Thomas Kidd wrote up to 60% mm-hmm. because he ran this through a computer analysis program that was designed to detect plagiarism and was able to uh-huh. identify that much yeah. in Edward III. The first part of Henry VI, Gary Taylor yeah, says Thomas Nash wrote it. Um, some say Thomas Kidd, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, that Shakespeare partially revised some of Nash's plays by another unknown playwright. Less than 20% of the play was actually written by Shakespeare alone. Like, we talked about a lot of that when we were, yeah. like, how that's one of the reasons why the first part of Henry VI feels so disjointed, yeah. because there were if, if it's Shakespeare authors, and yeah. Kidd and Nash are all, yeah. like, that's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, yeah. right? Yeah. Too um, many, too many cooks, Lindsay. Thomas uh, Middleton again comes up. Um, which is interesting. I've never seen this. No. and To say Macbeth. In Macbeth. Yeah. And, and to add musical scenes. This is what I read. Where the hell are there musical scenes in Macbeth? Is there a musical scene? I mean, unless you, you had like... Most the, productions don't do them. No. I'll say that. If there uh, well, is one, I don't remember. That makes me wonder if there are versions of like musical versions of Shakespeare, of, of Macbeth, sorry, floating around out there. You know, like Maybe. High School Musical, but Macbeth. I sure. Who knows? Same um, thing with Measure for Measure. The Middleton, yes, Middleton uh, might have again. worked on that as there well. Once more into the breach, dear friends. Once more, I'll close the wall up with our English dead. So let's talk a little bit about uh, those analysis methods that people yeah. do use uh, to try and figure out who wrote what. Um, handwriting analysis is the first one, and this yeah. is. Uh, like you mentioned, uh, secretary hand was was how these were mostly written, and it is incredibly dense, incredibly complicated, and incredibly you had to be there to understand what the hell was being written down. <laughs> it's impenetrable to the to the, the lay eye, eye, yeah, right? absolutely. Um, but this is where that handy thing yes. kind of comes in, where um, people have looked at that and said, based on the six extant signatures on legal documents. Yeah. Which are literally just the name Shakespeare, yeah. Um, written in different. <laughs> yeah, they're all yeah, they're all spelled they're, differently. Yeah. And they're all um, that based on that, people are able to to look at Handy and say it it was probably Shakespeare. Now, I did watch um, a video by yeah. Keir Cutler, who is a Canadian um, dramaturg, and and uh, we've watched a couple of his plays. He's he does the Fringe Theater Circuit mm-hmm. here in Canada, and uh, he's a noted. Anti Stratfordian, mm-hmm. and um, his one of his one man shows. I watched a, a clip of it on YouTube. We'll link it again. Um, he talks about the interesting Canadian connection to Hand D. Yeah. How like the guy who wrote the book on finger or fingerprint analysis on handwriting <laughs> analysis worked for the RCMP in the sixties, and he did an analysis of Hand D and said there's no way that this is Shakespeare. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's obviously room for, uh, interpretation. interpretation. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, handwriting analysis to this day is still kind of a, not sketchy. I won't say that, but it, yeah. it, it, it is, it is well, very, it's, it's, like you said, it's heavily based on interpretation. Like, yeah. and, and it's, it feels almost like pseudoscience in a way, even though it's not, Yeah, it feels like there's so much of the individual can come through, like the individual doing the analysis. Yeah. 
they, because two people can look at the same thing and maybe see different and things. And pull off different. Right? Yeah. And I don't know much about handwriting analysis, yeah, to be to honest. Yeah, to actually speak about it. But yeah, there's there's a lot there. Um, we'll include the full um, yes. link to the Thomas More manuscript. I think there's only three pages of it. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, that where Handy was involved, right? Yeah. Yeah, so or it's not like it's... the whole manuscript, even. Yeah, there's there's 64 images on the link that were from the British Library. Okay. That, um, so 64 scans. Okay. Um, but anyway, yeah. then that will give you a chance to see what hand, what uh, secretary hand looked like as well. Good luck. Then there's stylometry. So stylometry is the definition of it from the Oxford English Dictionary. Dictionary defines it as. <laughs> the statistical analysis of variations in literary style between write, one writer or genre and another. Yeah. And um, it's it's kind of a new, new-ish, at least in terms of Shakespearean scholarship, a new way of um, analyzing the works. Mm-hmm. And in 2009, Arthur F. Kinney and Hugh Craig laid out the case with considerable biological detail for the absolute individuality of verbal expression using computational stylistics to calculate the probability that a particular author wrote or did not write a particular body of text. Mm-hmm. Roughly speaking, their method is to compare an author's use of two types of common words, function words and lexical words, in his known works with the use of the same words in an anonymous work or disputed section of text. Mm-hmm. So this is a quote from uh, from their work or from a, an analysis of their work. Mm-hmm. So do you want to know how stylometry tell, is Tell done? me, explain it to me, Lindsay. Like <clears throat> this was so fascinating I to me. I, I absolutely love this. I got so into it. It's very cool. So the first thing you do is you select an appropriate control group of an author's acknowledged plays, and you divide it into 2,000-word segments, um, regardless of act, scene divisions, anything like that. So just 2,000-word segments. They could be completely random. For each segment, you obtain a numerical score for the author's use and non-use of a group of the 200 most common functional words occurring in early modern English drama. So words such as and, you, through, that kind of thing. Functional words have syntactical rather than mm-hmm. semantic uses. Yeah. So this is why you, you, you look at those words. Yeah. Then you develop a numerical score for the author's use and non-use of a group of selected lexical words. So these are words in a writer's vocabulary that do have semantic mm-hmm. meaning. On two scatter plots, you would graphically display the individual scores for each test for each segment of 2,000 words. The result of the two scatter plots, on which one is a cluster of points indicating the author's typical use of the 200 functional words, and on the other indicates the author's typical use of the selected lexical words, the statistical center of each cluster is the centroid. Okay? okay. So this is kind of the, the nexus point that would be their, their center. Their that's where they're yeah, or whatever. That's where right? they that's where they're at home. So then you conduct the same two tests for a similar 2,000-word block from an anonymous play, a fragment of a play, some other piece of writing, mm-hmm. and you do the same thing. Superimpose the scores on the scatter plot when, once you get them, and then you compare them. The physical distance of the scores for the subject segment of text from the centroid of the selected author's cluster indicates the degree of probability that he wrote it. So if they, you overlay the two scatter plots for lexical words and functional words, and they match up, mm-hmm. you've got... A match the author wrote the unknown yes. part yes if they don't match they're wildly divergent then they probably didn't so this is what they did they it sounds very scientific there's arguments in favor and against this yep. but using this they 
largely confirmed the authorship attributions that we've already mentioned. Yeah. So this is where you get Thomas Kidd wrote this, Middleton wrote that, Nash wrote the other thing, right? Yeah. And uh, you can read more about it. I'll, I'll post this link as yes. well about stylometry, what it can and cannot tell us. However, as modern research, this is a quote, as modern research has demonstrated, Shakespeare was a meticulous and persistent reviser of virtually all his plays over the course of a long career. It is much more likely that the substandard scenes that are attributed to co-authors are his original versions that by chance or by compositor's error remained in the play after he revised the rest of it. The difference in the quality of writing is probably due to the development and refinement of his poetic and dramatic skills. Moreover, if he did collaborate with anyone, it would more likely have been with the playwrights in his employ, like John Lely or Anthony Munday, or perhaps his son-in-law, and I think they meant this is the Edward de Vere's son-in-law. Oh, okay. Who was one of the possible owners of the WS. Oh, uh, okay. Yep. Okay, gotcha. Um, William Stanley, who in 1599 was reported to be writing comedies for the common players. Okay. So it's not like, we've talked about this before, the earlier plays have very stylistically divergent feels to them from the later plays, and this could just be the growth of the writer. So stylometry isn't an exact science in the sense that as any writer can tell you earlier works are going to have different lexical um yeah i mean yeah comparing something he wrote in 1593 to something he wrote in 1609 are there's a very big difference Mm -hmm. in the skills and abilities and concerns of shakespeare in that time period right it is not uh it's not a one-to-one comparison so right uh I Your would, scatter plots are going to be different. Yeah, yeah. That's why right? I'm wondering if, like, you literally just compared his earliest play to his latest play <laughs> mm-hmm. that were confirmed his, like The mm-hmm. Tempest versus Romeo and Juliet even. You know, are they actually going to match that closely? I, I'm assuming they've done some sort of, you know, confirmation on this. But, um, you know, it, it's just interesting to think that these are uh, these statistical models exist. That's the really cool part. Is yeah. Like you can do this with language and Absolutely. get some, something meaningful out of it. Absolutely. It's really cool. So the quote that I that I had just quoted was from um, a pretty Oxfordian and anti-Stratfordian viewpoint. Yes. There is a counter argument that we'll link as well to um, somebody who's more in favor of stylometry and we'll let you be the judge. But yeah. I, I do think it is really interesting that this is where this is where we've landed in terms of comparative comparative I can speak no you can't comparative studies yeah thank you what's mine is yours and what is yours is mine so now we'll take a closer look at the two plays we took a closer look at yeah Uh, so two noble kinsmen and henry the eighth um both attributed to shakespeare and fletcher Mm -hmm. for the most part uh there's a lot of agreement on this so i think it's i think they're uh Useful. They're good, yeah. They're they're useful place to look at in terms of trying to suss out, you know, which ones, which aspects Shakespeare wrote, which ones we think Fletcher wrote, um, and whether our gut instinct kind of matches up with those stylometric and other analyses that have been done um, over the ages. So, yeah. Linz, let's start with Tubaloma Kinsman. Uh, you you read that one, and mm-hmm. you have in the notes here. Acts 1 and 5 are generally attributed to Shakespeare. Acts 2 through 4, the middle ones, are all Fletcher. Yeah, and that was kind of... I, I uh, Reading it, you kind of get the sense from Act 1 that this is... It feels much more... Like, it flows a lot better. There's a lot more... Um, we should start by saying that Two Noble Kinsmen is based on uh, uh, Chaucer's 
A Knight's Tale, tale yeah, yeah. from the Canterbury Tales. Yeah. It follows basically the exact same plot, plot. literally same names, same everything. They just um, copied and pasted. Basically, <laughs> but they added they added a subplot that um, uh, Fletcher and um, Shakespeare. Shakespeare added yeah. a subplot um, involving uh, the jailer's daughter, I believe. So this story, oh, okay. <laughs> it's if you know the, the Knight's Tale, it's about these two men who... Um, fall in love with the daughter of their captor. They're, they, they're fighting against the Duke of Theseus. Uh, the Duke Theseus, sorry. Okay. Um, who is, uh, throws them in jail and they fall in love with his daughter through a window and then become bitter enemies over who wins her hand. And in the end of Chaucer's version, one of them dies and the other one gets her hand. In Shakespeare's version... Shakespeare and Fletcher's version, um, they both end up, one of them ends up with the daughter mm-hmm. and the other one ends up with the jailer's Jailer daughter. daughter yeah. So it kind of has a feel of, of a, yeah. a comedy in that sense, but yeah. it, it, it doesn't end quite as tragically as yeah. Chaucer's, tragic comically yeah. as, yeah. as Chaucer's does. Um, so yeah, the, the first act did feel very much like Shakespeare, except for the prologue, which we'll, yeah. we'll get to a little bit. Um, well, no, we'll get you right now because it's, uh, and I mentioned this to Aiden when I was reading it. I'm like, this prologue feels like um, uh, it's too self-deprecating almost. It's like uh, we can't be as good as Chaucer. Chaucer is so great. Yeah. Um, he was the best. He was the granddaddy of them all. We're just we're just poor imitators, yeah. right? Yeah. And that doesn't seem like, we've seen Shakespeare do things similarly to yeah. this where it's like, yeah, the vasty fields of France can't be represented yeah. in this humble on this humble stage, but uh, nothing like this where yeah. it's like groveling. And Shakespeare never mentions Chaucer at any point in any of the other plays. Yeah. So that feels Even like he it's Troilus and Cresta. Yeah, you know, right. Like, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So um, this that feels like it's. Uh, it almost struck me as like this is a younger writer, a newer writer who's not as confident. And I mean, fuck, if you're Thomas Fletcher and you're John Fletcher, John Fletcher, John Fletcher, um, <laughs> and you're writing, you're yeah. writing next to Shakespeare, like that's got to be a, like the imposter syndrome is going to be really bad. Real. So yeah, you're going to be like, I'm not as good as the guy I'm sitting next to. I'm <laughs> definitely not as good as, as Chaucer. So forgive me for not getting it right. Yeah. So anyway, that that was my and and that's the common consensus I think for a lot of people who yeah, write it. Yeah. Um, Act three, scene one. I read um, Mark Van Doren. Uh, I read something from him that suggests that it's not the work of Shakespeare because it feels like an imitation of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Um, and his his words, wrenched, syntaxed, curled syllables, and lines that were quote charming in their oddity rather than beautiful in their strength. Um, so that seems like. Again, just a personal observation of somebody, some other guy reading it. Yeah. Um, But it strikes you that the language feels a little clunky, just like we thought when we were reading Henry VI way back in 2019. Yep. Act five, definitely considered to be Shakespeare, but scene three, again, troubles Van Doren, who calls it imitative. And then there's an an epilogue to the play that uh, probably was written by Fletcher, sucking up to the audience very yeah. much the way that uh, Puck does at the end of Midsummer, And uh, Van Doren, I'm going to quote him again, 
He said, would that the real Theseus from A Midsummer Night's Dream had been given the opportunity to say, no epilogue, I pray you, for your play needs no excuse. <laughs> um, because it's, it is really, yeah. it's, it's over the top. It's, it's yeah. not really necessary, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think, I think that this does kind of suggest a pairing of two writers, one who is very comfortable with his craft and another who is um, perhaps coming into his own but isn't quite as confident and is struggling with that. Especially a guy like Fletcher who's who's going to take over and Shakespeare's going to fuck off back to Stratford, yeah. right? He, he's he's in training, right? Yeah, exactly. This is the two weeks before the guy is handed <laughs> in his, his notice and yeah. now you're sitting next to him at the computer Trying learning how the systems exactly. work, right? Exactly, yeah. No, absolutely. And I think it's... it's uh it, it, it's it's funny as you were talking about that. There's a mm-hmm. lot of parallels with Henry VIII. So I'll jump in now. Yeah. Um, Start with the plot. I know nothing about Henry. VIII. Okay. So Henry VIII is <laughs> is a weird kind of play. Um, it's it's very much a history in the sense that Henry VIII is a relatively minor character. Again, mm. um, I think more than any other play, there is no main character in Henry VIII. Oh. Okay. Um, it's it's very very odd that way. Maybe Catherine of Aragon is actually uh, the bet the the most key character but anyways okay. it's about uh his divorcing her and the uh cardinal Worsley. Worsley, uh yeah, who, Worsley. uh he uh he basically raised some taxes and did some bad things and tried to avoid the king getting his divorce that he wanted to yeah. marry Anne Boleyn um and so he gets punished for that so it that's really the whole play it's it's yeah. it's a strange play um, in structure more than anything. And we'll, we'll get to that. But to, to follow up on your points yeah. about how scholars generally feel and, and the stylometrics kind of back up to an extent, um, it's kind of all over the map. It's kind of it's kind of scene by scene. So yeah, Shakespeare's... Yours, yours is really... Yeah, it's kind of, it is. It's all over the place. So uh, Shakespeare's considered to have written in Act 1, scenes 1 and 2. In Act 2, scenes 3 and 4. In Act 3, scenes 2, uh, but only the first <laughs> 100 or 200 lines. And then in Act 5, Scene 1. Okay. And then Fletcher wrote the rest, including a prologue, which I'll talk about in a second. And uh, an epilogue. And an epilogue. Uh, he in, liked these bookends. He did. Well, I, I mean, Shakespeare, again, yeah. They, yeah. there's evidence that he wrote a lot of them too, and they just yeah. didn't make it through the days. But, That's true. So Fletcher, prologue, uh, Act 1, Scene 3 and 4. Act 2, Scene 1 and 2. Act 3, Scene 1 and 2. Uh, well, the lines 203 to 458 after the exit of the king in Scene 2. Uh, and then in Act 4, he wrote both scenes. And in Act 5, scenes 2 through 5, and then the epilogue. It's almost like um, the way you have, like, Disney artists who would be like, I'm drawing Peter Pan and you're drawing Wendy. And like, and, and so you would do the scenes that you were in charge of. Yeah. It's almost like Shakespeare's like, well, I will write the king. Yeah. And you write all the other characters, yeah. which I think is pretty funny. Like, yeah. if that's how they divvied it up. Well, and that, we'll, we'll talk about that because I think that's the most interesting yeah. aspect of this. Um, but the prologue, just to go back to that, mm-hmm. is very similar to... Uh, is it? Yeah. Yes, it's the, you know, it's very much like, um, you know, if you came in here looking for a good time, get the fuck out of here because this is a tragedy. These are sad times. Everyone's sad. Don't expect to be (laughs) made happy sitting here today. You got to like, it's really just prepping the audience. It's like lowering expectations. Like there's no jokes, nothing funny happens here. Nothing good happens here. But the most infuriating part of this play is that there's no conflict at all because this this, this is a play that is designed to appease the the well it's the great grandfather of no the grandfather of the the king of the time right mm. who's the grandfather great grandfather no of, of james, james the first james was from scotland 
Yeah. <laughs> but but he, his, I don't think there there was a direct relation. I think they were like cousins oh, or, yeah, something, or something, right? Like that. Yeah, okay. But well, still familially Yes, and tied. yeah, and Elizabeth was the queen very shortly to this. Mm-hmm. And that, that just reeks throughout the play because everybody, even Colonel Wolseley, who's the bad guy yeah. in the play, gets this whole speech where he's just like, well, he wasn't that bad. You know, he was he was a learned scholar and he helped Wolfie build was. Oxford. Yeah, like, yeah. and there's a guy just going on about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it is um, it's annoying. But anyways, so it's Tudor apologia. Yeah, yeah, it really feels like wow. it feels like. <laughs> I think if Shakespeare had written this play on his own, it yeah. would have been a very different play. Yeah, I feel like the play that we got is the result of Fletcher saying, "Oh shit, I can't piss off the king." I'm I'm talking about the last king. Like the only thing between James. And Henry VIII is Elizabeth, really, yeah. in the middle. And I have to talk about him. And so right. all my comments are going to be comments about King. So I can't really talk about it in, with any sort of depth or anything like that. Right. Because I might piss off the current king. So I feel like this is Especially considering thing. by the end of his career, Shakespeare was pretty disillusioned with the Jacobean court. Yeah. And, yeah. and was pretty angry Making at a lot, of, a lot of the stuff. Of yeah, yeah, exactly, so yeah. So it would have been a different play, for definitely. sure. Definitely. Well, yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about that. So those are the generally accepted breakdowns. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of uh, interpretations vary a lot. Um, and I found a really good stylometric uh, summary, uh, an analysis done yeah. by a guy called Peter Plachach, I think. Uh, I think he's Czech. Um, and it's somewhat accessible. Uh, so we'll link to it uh, below. I read through it. Mm-hmm. I think I understood it. Um, there's a lot of statistical analysis, a bunch of you know sigmas and, and other <laughs> Greek symbols that I don't really understand that well. Um, but the results that he came up with uh, really matched up with okay. uh, the common perception. Uh, he kind of had a chart initially of like, here's what the scholars from like the 60s before we started doing this kind of analysis thought of the how the plays and the, the, the scenes uh, matched up. Yeah. And then here's my analysis. And yes, it matches very closely. Okay. Um, but my interpretation, reading his, uh, it completely missed the mark of knowing how this was a collaboration, which is mm. in the structure of the play. Okay. Um, so I think the like they, they just focus on the words. That's what right. stylometrics focus yeah. on. It's it's the writing of what words do they use when, how, and <laughs> so forth, right? Um, and that makes total sense. But a bigger decision is about what goes, what scenes take place on the page and in this in the playhouse altogether. Mm-hmm. Not what you what what words the characters are saying, but what characters are on the stage, and what are they doing on stage? Okay. And that's something that is a whole other. Stylometrics can't. You can't. Well, you can't. Yeah, you can't assess that. You can't say like if you gave someone, okay, you're going to write a play about this historical figure. Yeah. And that's it. That's all you ask them to do. You can give that same task to ten different writers. They will give you ten entirely different stories. Some will do a sweeping epic about their whole life. Some will do a play about an individual scene. Yeah. And that could be the whole comedy. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Exactly. Right. Okay. So. That's what's really missing in the stylometric yeah. kind of analysis. And I, I feel like yeah, okay. Henry VIII has a great uh, example of that because Act 4 is absolutely fucking terrible. And I, that's how I knew that Fletcher wrote it. And actually, uh, Plachak's, uh analysis splits it between Shakespeare and, and okay. Fletcher. And okay. there's there's absolutely no way uh, in my <laughs> mind because... You're an expert. Um, well, okay, so both scenes are basically just uh, characters talking about things that are happening off stage. Okay. And that's it. And okay. it, and it's literally just talking about characters that we've already seen or we know about. And it's kind of tying up the loose ends about those characters. One okay. is about the description of Henry's marriage to Anne Boleyn. Okay. And the other one is uh, 
Catherine of Aragon asking about everything that's happening back in London. Okay. And that's when she get uh, she learns that Cardinal Wolseley is going to be has gotten sick and he's going to die. Um, and she's like, oh, well, I'm glad he's dead. And then another guy's like, no, 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 no. You shouldn't say that about a man of the church. He was a good guy. He did all this stuff. It is boring. It is, there's no conflict. Everybody's just happy. Yeah, it it is literally the prime example of telling, not showing. And it just, Shakespeare did that occasionally. Like, Mm -hmm. I'll totally admit that. Like, uh, the Winter's Tale is a great example. Like, they Mm -hmm. have this big reunion and it just kind of happens off stage. Mm -hmm. Um, But he did it sparingly and in order to focus on something else. Yeah. Um, Here it feels like, from your description, it's just to advance the plot. Yeah, it's like, well, we need need to get to the Act 5. So let's just wrap this up with two quick scenes Um, and the fact that they're both back to back Mm -hmm. is just so boring to watch and so and and the language doesn't help either it does read I feel like this is my headcanon yeah Fletcher wrote it Shakespeare's like oh man yeah, it's not bad it's not like, bad uh, can i just make a few little t- and he brushed up the language the big eraser. well yeah I mean, he just he didn't change the scene he didn't yeah. he didn't say okay well we need to have a you lower more class. dynamic or yeah, something yeah yeah like shakespeare would have had a lower class character in a subplot a fool who comes in and makes yes. fun of things there is none of that here yeah. so he's he's literally just approaching it entirely different okay um so yeah, if if Shakespeare wrote it, he wrote it as laid out by Fletcher. Fletcher wrote out the this the thing. He's like, okay, I have these two scenes. Um, this is what I want to do, and this is what I want to have happen in the scene. And Shakespeare's like, well, nothing's happening. You're just having me talk about things that are happening somewhere else. Right. Okay, I'll do it, but it's not how I do it. But yeah. I can do it for you. You know, yeah. um, this is your baby. Yeah, tell yeah. me what you want. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, I that's that's been my kind of viewpoint on it. Yeah. Is like uh, this was a really interesting example because it's it's so telling. And I feel like there's a lot of uh, other collaborative environments uh, where this kind of takes place and also shows up. Yeah. I have a I have an example. I have a counter example. Uh, it's a Doctor Who example. Okay. So my favorite Doctor Who episode of all time is The Doctor's Wife. Which is uh, Neil Gaiman. Neil Gaiman wrote it. It was <laughs> yeah. his first episode he ever wrote. I think yeah. only he wrote one more. Um, and it's it's amazing because it looked at something that's so obvious now, but nobody had done it before in the mm-hmm. sixty years of Doctor Who yeah. or fifty years or however long it had been. He made the TARDIS a character, right? And that's it. Like again, you nobody else even had the thought yeah. to cre- to attack. The doctor from that angle to yeah. give him a, the one companion he's had the whole through time. 50 years uh, you give him make that a character and yeah, make yeah. that something real yeah. that's an idea that did not exist in the Doctor Who writer room at any point in before this until Neil Gaiman walks until Neil in. Gaiman walks right. in and he's like I'm gonna do it this way yeah and so you can you can point at that and just that idea alone yeah uh, was Neil Gaiman's it was not Doctor Who. It wasn't Stephen Moffat. Yeah, it, it was nothing else. Okay. So even if Neil Gaiman never got a writing credit, say Stephen Moffat's like, no, okay, well, you've done that, and I'm now going to rewrite the whole script, so right. it's my way, Neil Gaiman's fingerprints are still on it, because right. that's that's where he came from, right? And I, I, I love that kind of uh, approach to kind of a, attacking... Yeah, and to, to tra- saying that, like, uh, it's not that easy to separate... Oh, he wrote this and he wrote that. Well, yeah, because the, when you yeah. are collaborating, it all that goes out the window because you can say two words in when you're brainstorming, and I can take those two words and yeah. run with them in a completely different way. And now way. my fingerprints are on what you've written. But they may not show up in a silometric analysis. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay. So in that case, 
do you see Shakespeare's fingerprints on the scene in question where they're describing things that are happening off stage yeah, that, that backs up the stylometric yeah, no, analysis? I, no, it's the other way. Like, I can see why the stylometric analysis might say Shakespeare wrote this because the word choice feels right, like that's Shakespeare. What, okay, okay, but that's yeah, what I'm asking. But, yeah. but the structure does not match Shakespeare's. Yeah, okay. So... Yeah, I think there's just, okay. there's a discrepancy there of of written by in the terms of like I typed out Physically, the letters. Yes, versus... but there's a difference between transcription and well, yeah, actually there, generating well, there, the idea and coming up with it. Right? Yeah, yeah. There's a difference, and that's between, where stylometry falls short. Yeah, there's yeah, yeah exactly. There's a difference between uh, structural style and writing style. Yeah. And you can separate them. And mm-hmm. I think that's that's a given in a play like this, which was just it was boring. Yeah. I did not enjoy it at all. And the scenes that I that I agreed with on the the stylometric analysis were more boring. I I I, I really pitied Fletcher because he was really trying, but he uh, so unfortunate because this is the play that burned down the globe. I you know. would think that it would be a barn burner, well, literally. <laughs> there, there's a lot of there's a lot of visual things going on okay. too. Like there's characters like huge descriptive passages, yeah. which is also very non Shakespearean. You know, he'd have like mm. enter Hamlet's father yes here it's like enter Hamlet's father wearing this and carrying a robe and then followed ah. by a sort of train of six people and he describes okay. all of them individually it's yeah. a very non-Shakespearean yeah, yeah. approach so I just I uh yeah I I thought it was very interesting but yeah. very kind of disappointing that there's it feels like the analyses are not taking that into consideration yet, I'm so. glad I'm glad you brought that up because the other point that I have where I, I kind of feel like stylometry and some of the other more scientific analyses fall short is that um, or is in the case that we we still don't a hundred percent know that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare and as an ardent <laughs> Stratfordian I want to believe he did yeah but there's there isn't any hard proof it's not like you know, I think stylometry can work really well when you've got Neil Gaiman, a novel by Neil Gaiman, and you've got an episode of Doctor yeah, Who yeah. that Neil Gaiman wrote yeah. in collaboration with other writers. And you can compare those two because you know without a shadow of a doubt that Neil Gaiman, the, the source text was by a single author. Yeah. You know, it's attributed. There's no question. Yeah. Whereas with Shakespeare... The plays we know that there was collaboration happening. So even in the plays that were like that, you and I have sat here and said 100 percent this Macbeth, yeah. Romeo and Juliet, like this was Shakespeare. Not the musical scenes. Yeah, <laughs> um, we don't know that. Yeah, there there could have been a whole host of collaborators. Well, not even collaborators. That. There could have been errors in transcription. Exactly, and, and or, or and they stuff. borrowed yeah. from a quarto edition that was just some rando in the audience who remembered, remembered it. Now it's his fingerprints that are yeah. in forming the stylometry so it it does you have to make a lot of assumptions about the authorship of those plays when you're when you're taking a source text whose source you don't know right and so i think that's that's something that um i didn't know about stylometry and then coming into this i'm like well i i see holes in this argument yeah not to say that I'm disagreeing with any of the very no. good research analysis and, and research analysis, that's yeah, gone yeah. into it. I just think that um, it does it less it rests on assumptions, and and it leads me to believe what I said in the in the opening essay that it feels far more likely now that Shakespeare had collaborators the whole time. Mm-hmm. I don't buy the Shakespeare in love lone genius idea. Yeah, I think that this is very much a collaborative. 
Well, and even even not even collaboration. There's probably editors. There's, oh, there's yeah. just the censors to worry about, and yeah. there's the you know the play the this guys who have to actually read the lines. Creation in yeah. the sense that yeah. we experience creation today, and even that has whole hosts. I I, yeah. I watched a TikTok recently because I've been at just home one? just one just one <laughs> one hour that I spend um, with uh, Hank Green, who was talking about copyright. And like using song lyrics and how much it cost when he wrote his first book, how much it cost to use the song lyrics he did. It was like $11,000 or something like that. And like that kind of stuff you have to think about. Well, then it's not, you know, pure creation. I think that that nothing is really, especially if you're doing it for um, monetary gain, right? You're going to have to make these considerations. So yeah, there's just a whole host of things that complicate this question. Um, It's just been really interesting to kind of delve into the plays that, are questioned as yeah yeah uh, purely shakespearean makes me think we should question a lot more if i longer stay we shall begin our ancient bickering so this episode's ancient bickerings we're gonna ask a very personal question mm. Lindsay. uh shakespeare again it's time traveled no yes. no, just, no. Okay. we've time traveled we've time traveled yes. and we have a chance to collaborate with shakespeare on one of his plays yeah yeah, yeah. which one do you choose to work on him with do you want me to answer first? Yeah, you go for it. Um, I think I would go for Midsummer Night's Dream because okay. it's the one that we know he well, pretty much whole cloth invented and, and wrote. Yeah. And I think that um, experiencing the creative pro- process on that kind of play would be um, would be really interesting. And not that I think I could add anything to the play. It would just be fun to It'd be, be in the room. Yeah. <laughs> Ask him, you know? why are you doing that? Oh, okay, yeah, okay, yeah. that's Where, good. Where'd yeah. you come up with that name? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, or whatever. I think that bottom. would be... Bottom. Is that hmm, a funny name? Or? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I think that would be that would be pretty cool, okay. too. And maybe maybe I would make a few suggestions about the four lovers. Like, can we can we differentiate them a little bit? Or is the point that the they're point supposed to be... The point is love is All stupid. right, fine, yeah, I guess. Anyway, that would be mine. Easy okay. answer. That's, that's where I'm that's going. Fair. So what do you think? Uh, I have two answers. Oh, okay. The first one is an obvious one for you, Lindsay. You should know this already. Troilus and Cressida. Of course. Yeah, because I've written it already. So I'd like <laughs> to see how he approached it and what, you know, what his thinking was and how he... Because he had a very different story than uh, Chaucer's. Um, yeah. And he borrowed a bunch of different things. And he, he was a much more cynical thinker. And I mm. love that. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite Shakespeare plays just for the cynicism. Um, but so I, that one's obvious. But I think the one I'd actually like to like jump in and see it is as you like it okay um because that's when we started noticing like shakespeare was kind of done with formula it was one of those like later yeah. comedies where yeah. he's like you know what fuck it um you know you want a happy ending and all this stuff okay kind of maybe i can give you that but you know we're gonna fuck off in the forest and mm-hmm. you're, we're, we're gonna make fun of lovers and everybody's gonna think they're in love with a dude we're gonna have depression and yeah 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 know, we're like gonna have just... jacques just sitting out there you know being depressed the yeah. whole time it it was it was a shift, and I'd like to see. I'd like to be there again in the room mm-hmm. talking to him and being like, "Okay, so you're thinking these guys are a little more jaded than your mm-hmm. usual guys?" Because you know, I saw, I loved, uh, you know, uh, much ado about nothing. Loves labor's lost. Loves labor's lost. <laughs> like these are true lovers, you know, yeah, working yeah. hard. And he's like, "Yeah, I'm fucking done with that." Like I just want to see what's going on in that in his chain brain at that smoking, point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Giant pipe, Drunk, just, just like, like whatever. <laughs> You know, I just yeah. done with this. It's shit. a nice, it's a shift in in his in yeah. his writing. So I'd want to I want to be there for that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Cool. Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say good night till it be morrow. So, Aiden, where are we going next? 
It's a short journey, Lindsay, to the end of the road. It is uh, The Tempest is yeah. next on our uh, list of plays. It's the final play. The last play. play. The last play. Um, and then after that, we will be going to the authorship question. Yeah. Uh, which we so put this, off. Does this? Well, we did that on purpose because yeah. you guys at the end, now we've read them all. Yeah. Now we, we can, can say read. definitively we will establish who the true author. No, we won't. No, we will all. not. not um, close, but yeah. Does that mean that a month from the day that we're releasing this, like a month from now, we're going to be done? We're going to be finished Shakespeare. It's like Valentine's maybe, Day. Maybe we'll, do, maybe we'll do a little uh, post-summary. An epilogue? About, an epilogue, yes. <laughs> an epilogue to this podcast yeah. phrase. or phrase. Phase. Phase is phase. the word I was looking for. Thank you. Um, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll see. But yeah, for sure, two more episodes. Yeah, The uh, Tempest I'm looking forward to because it's been a yeah. long, long time since I read it. And it is one of those... Um, again, like legendary kind of plays because, and people always put it at the end, I think for pr- the reason of Prospero's yeah. end in the play feels, yeah. it feels appropriate that this yeah. would be Shakespeare's swan song. Yeah. So we'll talk about that, I'm sure. And yeah, um, yeah it's, it's, it's going to be good. I'm, yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So cool. thank you again for joining us and uh, we'll look forward to you joining us next time. Yeah. You can find all our episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast fix. If you want to tell us what you think of Shakespeare, his plays, poems, or any of the topics we discuss, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us on Twitter, that's at the Bixpod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash thebixpod, or by email at thebixpod at gmail.com. That's our cue to exit.